Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to Everything Compliance, Episode 26, the Will the Astros Repeat Edition. The Everything Compliance gang consists of Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors with affiliated monitors, Mike Volkoff, founder of the Volkoff Law Group, and Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quarterly Compliance. Today, we take up the following topics. Matt Kelly considers the moves by Congress to amend Dodd-Frank and <clears throat> takes a look at some of the administration's efforts, or at least claims, of regulatory reduction. Mike Volkoff considers the recent pronouncements by the Justice Department that it may extend the reach of the uh, declination program first laid out in the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. Jonathan Armstrong considers the Facebook Cambridge Analytica imbroglio from the EU-UK angle. He discusses the current EU and UK investigations and where uh, the sanctions may be, up to and including criminal penalties. Jay Rosen considers the current state of monitorships. He takes a sort of a a meta-review of monitorships over the years. It's a very interesting explanation. We have some great rants at the end of the episode. Matt Kelly rants on the firing of the Secretary of the Department of Veteran Affairs. Mike Volkoff rants on corruption and conflicts of interest at the federal level. Jonathan Armstrong, in what can only be termed a very English rant, rants about German tourists who don't know that they need to take their shoes off and bag up their liquids and security lines at the airport. Jay Rosen actually gives a shout-out to the state attorney generals for their success in bringing the emolument lawsuits against the president. And I take an opportunity to rant about the New York Times waiting almost a full week before running an obituary on one of my favorite authors, Philip Kerr. I also give a shout out to Rusty Staub, one of my boyhood heroes from the Colt 45 slash Houston Astros. Everything Compliance comes out bi-weekly, and Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 26 of Everything Compliance, the top roundtable podcast in compliance. The panelists of the Everything Compliance gang include Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors of Affiliated Monitors, Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance in London, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, and Mike Volkoff, founder of the Volkoff Law Group. In this podcast, we're going to take a look at uh, some of the stories that have interested us uh, over the past few weeks and indeed the first quarter of 2018. So we're going to jump right into it. So Jay Rosen, one of the things, uh, as Mr. Monitors, I should say, uh, in the introduction, but one of the things that I've been uh, reading about is the questions about are we at the end of the monitorship era? Uh, Given that that is part of the affiliated monitors business model, uh, what do you see on that score? Well, thanks for asking, Tom, and thanks to, for everyone for tuning in. Uh, let me give you a little bit of uh, historical context on um, where this question is coming from. Uh, back in February of 2016, Andrew Weissman, then the chief of the DOJ's fraud section, had stated that the Department of Justice would review its approach to the use of monitors. In 2016, nine companies that were subject to FCPA enforcement actions saw the DOJ or the SEC impose a corporate monitor requirement as part of their sanctions. Those companies were Vimplecom, Olympus, Las Vegas Sands, LATAM Airlines, Oxif, Embraer, 
Odebrecht, Braskem, and Teva. This trend continued over the first half of 2017 with the cases of Biomed, SQM, and OrthoFX, all involving the imposition of a corporate monitor. The installation of monitors in Biomet and Orthofix is not particularly surprising, as both of these companies were recidivists. In contrast, the DOJ did not impose monitors in the rules Royce, Tilia, SBM, and Keppel enforcement actions, presumably because these companies had demonstrated during the lengthy investigations that they had implemented rigorous and effective compliance programs and can be relied upon to self-report the progress of their efforts. This would be consistent with terms of the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy, which states that a company that has, quote, voluntarily self-disclosed, fully cooperated, and timely and appropriated remediated would generally not require appointment of a monitor if a company has, at the time of resolution, implemented an effective compliance program. With the exception of repeat offenders, will the DOJ and the SEC be moving away from imposing corporate monitors, even in cases involving widespread and systemic violations, when companies make significant early investments in compliance? Well, let's take a deeper dive into Telia. The Swedish communications company settled foreign bribery allegations for a total of nearly $1 billion, but did not have to hire a corporate monitor, a feature that experts say other companies will seek to emulate in future criminal resolutions. The Tilia resolution is particularly notable given that a monitor was imposed in the 2016 Vimplecom resolution, and both cases focused on similar bribery schemes in the telecom sector in Uzbekistan. In Tilia, the DOJ pointed to its deferred prosecution agreement in the company's remediation during the investigation as among one of the reasons why it would not require a monitor. The remediation was part of was of particular importance as Tilia terminated not only individuals involved in the misconduct, but also their supervisors, including directors who participated in the decision to enter the Uzbek market without conducting sufficient due diligence. One recent study released by the Manhattan Institute, a right-leaning think tank, found that more than half of all deferred and non-prosecution agreements with the DOJ reached with companies last year imposed a monitor. The report argued the original purpose of monitorships was to bolster company compliance where a company had not yet done the remedial work, and the DOJ should stick closer to previously stated policies. Rohan Virginkar, a partner at Foley and Lardner and who recently worked for the DOJ's FCPA unit, said the no monitor aspect of the deal to some extent reflects past DOJ policy pronouncements. This case is tangible evidence of what the department has been saying for some time, where a company is taking meaningful steps, the government won't insist on a monitor, Virginkar said. So we might ask, just like the dinosaurs who used to roam the earth, is the era of corporate monitorships over? 
An increasing number of regulatory enforcement actions against companies presuppose that the cited misconduct occurred due to an absence of effective controls, discipline, or corporate compliance. Conversely, companies that can demonstrate a corporate commitment to ethics and compliance and present a strong defense that their misconduct is truly due to one or more bad actors rather than a tainted culture fare better in enforcement actions. Better often means lower fines and penalties, as well as avoidance of the costs and inconvenience of independent monitors required by the government agreement or ordered by a court. To gain a better understanding of how the effectiveness of corporate ethics and compliance ethics efforts and to identify any gaps in one company's approach compared with the best practices of other companies, some legal counsel recommend that their clients, and here's the key part, proactively engage a third-party consultant to conduct independent assessment of their ENC programs before a crisis occurs. An independent third-party assessment of a corporate ethics and compliance program provides an unbiased evaluation of a company's corporate culture, assesses its ethics and compliance policies, and anti-corruption controls, determines whether employee training is having its intended impact, and assesses whether the company is consistently and fairly enforcing its rules on ethics and integrity. This approach allows the independent evaluator to learn about the effectiveness of a company's training program, the staff's awareness of any communication or whistleblower hotline channels available to them, and to assess staff level comfort in raising issues and questions where their input and whether their input is taken seriously. In addition to a greater understanding of ethical culture, a third-party independent assessment can contribute to a more in-depth understanding of risk areas throughout the company that staff on the ground might be observing and attempting to manage, thereby contributing to a more robust enterprise risk assessment where perspectives may be limited to the top and middle management layers of the organization. Independent third-party assessments provide more than the assurance that the investment that the company has made in their ENC program has added value. In fact, just the process of conducting the assessment can send a strong message to the workforce of the company's commitment to providing more than just words when it comes to ensuring that ethics and integrity are incorporated into the day-to-day business of the organization. This message can also resonate with outside stakeholders, be they government regulators and enforcement agencies, should a bad actor shine the spotlight on the company's ethics and compliance commitments. With an increasing focus on the prosecution of corruption and fraud by global government regulatory agencies, including the scrutiny placed on existing ethics and compliance programs, companies and their legal counsel are recognizing that it's better to invest in a program which can help you manage the risk of such problems occurring and proactively discover matters that could be self-reported to government regulators. In this way, corporate budgets are targeted on areas that add value to the company rather than hoping that the established program is sufficient and subsequently funding increasingly high cost of litigations, fines, penalties, and when it turns out to be less than robust and real.
The use of third-party independent assessments can be a valuable resource for companies. Effective use of this risk management tool is the next step in the evolution of the field of corporate ethics and compliance for forward-looking companies committed to ensuring that their organizations act with integrity, follow pertinent laws and regulations, and maintain a commitment to excellence. Now, I'll be dating myself a little bit here, but just like the old Fram auto filter ad used to say, you can pay me now by commencing a proactive ethics compliance assessment, or you can pay me later, being forced by the government regulator to engage a corporate integrity monitor. The choice is yours. So, Jay, I guess the first question I have is um, we have seen really over, at least in the 10 years I've been in this field, an ebb and flow on monitorships. Uh, Some years, some eras, they seem to be greater. Uh, Certainly when I started in 2007, they were in vogue. Then there was a pullback a little bit, largely in response to uh, monitor fees and I think comments by Congress and perhaps even the courts. Uh, then there was a lull, and then they picked up, certainly, as you noted, in 2016 and uh, had a heyday in 2017. Is uh, what you're seeing now uh, really this, I don't want to say generational, but sort of ebb and flow? Or do you really see now um, a, a substantive change based upon uh, real facts on the ground that the Department of Justice or Securities and Exchange Commission uh, takes into account when uh, concluding an enforcement action? Uh, I think that's that's a great question, Tom, and I guess the way I would want to frame it now is that um, we've seen, a, a, I think, a, a concerted effort made by the DOJ specifically over the last five years where they are trying to give more and more information to the marketplace on uh, how you will be treated uh, in terms of how you represent your situation to the government. And uh, just like going out on a date, you only get one chance to make a first impression. And um, I think that with the amount of transparency given to what the government wants to offer and with the latest, um, you know, iterations of uh, assuming a declination, if a company is doing the work and they come in and they're serious, uh, there is a hefty reward to be uh, gleaned by getting both the declination and being able to avoid a corporate monitor. So I I think the short answer is that um, I wouldn't say it's an ebb and flow, but I would say it's a consistent march to the uh, both the government and companies being more aware of how a compliance program can save them uh, on future pain. So I think this is a an appropriate step in the right direction. And I think from our perspective at Affiliated Monitors, we still aim to be able to help our clients. And the question may be, are we able to get involved a little bit earlier in that timeline and to help companies uh, concurrently do remediation while they're doing that investigation? And then, as I had said a little bit earlier, when you go to the government and you've shown the work that you've done, I think you make a better first impression and you have an opportunity for a better result. Jay, I have a question for you here. Um, I'm somewhat wondering whether monitors have, like, 
kind of given themselves a bad name or some monitorships have given the entire industry a bit of a a bad rep when I'm looking at examples like the former attorney general, John Ashcroft, he wound up with a monitorship that was worth, I think, $54 million. Uh, Louis Free, the former director of the FBI, he once got a very lucrative monitorship. We have Larry Thompson, who is the monitor at Volkswagen, who was a uh, buddy-buddy with Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and I am sure that Larry Thompson is um, making quite a decent penny on that monitorship. I mean, high-profile examples like that do leave some people on the outside rolling their eyes at the industry as a whole. And I know that's not the business model for affiliated monitors, um, but... You know, I I do somewhat see these high-profile examples. I'm like, oh boy, here we go. People are going to start criticizing monitorships as uh, like a gravy train, and I don't necessarily know that they're wrong in cases like that. So I'm just kind of wondering how that filters into the conversation about what monitorships are and what they should be doing. Uh, I think those are great data points, Matt, and and it's a good question. I think one of the things that um, you can kind of see out in the marketplace. So there are all types of monitors out there. Um, some people, you know, hail from the Southern District of New York as alumni. Right? Uh, some people really have the chops to do a monitorship. And um, I, I think one of the things that uh, you need to do is when, if you are in the situation that you are looking to hire a monitor, um, you know, you're going to see all sorts of different uh, potential uh, applicants show up for that. So whether they're folks who have uh, experience in the forensic world, you know, the big four and some of those other smaller organizations, companies that are specialists in um, doing monitorships like affiliated, we've done uh, nearly 700 of them since 2004. And then uh, you get the folks that you've mentioned who it appears that uh, there might be a sweetheart deal. So I think you know, part of the situation with this uh, presumption of a declination and the potential not having a monitorship, uh, it can be significant, especially uh, with the sums of money that, uh, you know, these monitors reportedly have made. Um, the one thing that we really look at, and there's a, you know, when you go into a company as a monitor, you can be perceived uh sometimes as, as a company w without a home country because the government thinks that you're going in there to do a gotcha operation and you're not. And the company, uh, although you're trying to help them get the best results and prevent them from becoming recidivists, they may think you're there representing the government. So you're in that kind of precarious position. And I think if you're able to, um, you know, the way the process works is the company will submit three candidates to the DOJ and the DOJ will pick one of them. So I think the marketplace is definitely getting uh, better about picking who the monitors are. And just because somebody has the, um, you know, the CV that they've been a prosecutor or they've worked for the DOJ before, that doesn't necessarily mean they have the best skill sets to help out a client in terms of what they need for the monitorship. So in concluding, you know, I think part of this is a little bit of a backlash to some of those uh, sweetheart deals. And I think, uh, you know, the companies and outside counsel are getting um, a lot more um, 
you know, uh, selective about who they bring to the table to potentially help them satisfy their monitor needs. All right. So Jonathan Armstrong, uh, as you may have heard, there was a, a scandal in the United States around Facebook and a company in the United Kingdom called Cambridge Analytica. Matt Kelly and I have been writing about it, thinking about it, and talking about it from the Facebook perspective, but we really wanted to know if you had any thoughts from, number one, the more of the pers- perspective of Cambridge Analytica, but also from what current EU and UK data privacy law may be as of March uh, 29th, 2018, when we're recording this, or what it might be after May 25, 2018, when GDPR goes into effect. Yeah, thanks, uh, Tom. There's a whole load of uh, aspects to this we could discuss, and maybe it helps to lay down some of the ground we've covered uh, thus far. Uh, The first thing to say, I guess, is this isn't a new investigation. There were, uh, it's been an open secret that the UK data protection regulator, the Information Commissioner, has been looking at this for a considerable amount of time. And indeed, she made public statements in May 2017 about her investigation. I think what sped things along somewhat is a Channel uh, 4 investigation. Channel 4 is a public broadcaster uh, in the UK funded by advertising. Uh, And and again, I think some people have known that uh, Channel 4 have been up to something since at least the beginning of the year. And what some, I think, caught people's interest, and if you were to go on YouTube, you can find a lot of the material from the Channel 4 investigation is uh, having just returned from the SEC in in Frankfurt, I guess I'm allowed to say schadenfreude, over the activities of some of the people at Cambridge Analytica. For example, one of them is videoed by a covert uh, uh, investigative journalist boasting that he can get facts out of people by using covert video surveillance. So it's, uh, it's, there is an element of irony about a lot of that. But the allegations are certainly very serious, and they suggest that executives at Cambridge Analytica have boasted about the fact that they have influenced elections in a whole load of jurisdictions, including possibly uh, the US election, possibly the Indian election, possibly a number of elections in Asia, and possibly even the uh, Brexit campaign. So uh, obviously, a lot more evidence to be gathered, and they remain allegations at this stage. But there is a whistleblower in the Cambridge Analytica camp who seems uh, determined to blow often and loudly. So I think as a result, this story isn't going to go away. We had a slightly farcical episode uh, last week where the Information Commissioner announced that since Cambridge Analytica were not going to uh, provide details voluntarily, she would effectively 
apply for a warrant to Dawn raid them. Now, Dawn raids by the data regulator in the UK are somewhat unusual. Some Dawn raids are on notice and quite a long period of notice. You know, so, so they might say, we're thinking of Dawn raiding you in May. Is that okay? Uh, and some would say that a Dawn raid on notice isn't a Dawn raid at all. And it allows people to prepare to remove data, etc. And in this case, uh, the uh, the uh, application for the warrant was flagged. The information commissioner seems to have made a mistake and issued her application for a warrant in the wrong court. So, despite saying at the beginning of last week that uh, she'd be in there soon. She only got into the premises at eight o'clock uh, last Friday night. Now, to their credit, given that they're relatively lowly paid public officials, her team did stay in the premises till three o'clock on Saturday morning. And we know that they removed boxes of stuff, but we don't know how many boxes of stuff they removed compared to the boxes of stuff that Cambridge Analytica are alleged to have removed uh, earlier in the week whilst the warrant was being obtained. We do know that there was a hearing uh, before uh, Mr Justice Leonard on the 27th of March where Cambridge Analytica seemed to be saying a warrant is now pointless because all the stuff is gone. Uh, but the, uh, the judge decided that he would still grant the warrant now, interestingly, I think if you're really into data privacy law, a lot of people talk about the regulatory aspects of data protection, and they apply here what are called principles one and seven. So principle one, only handle data fairly. Principle seven, don't hack into stuff, keep data secure. I'm summarizing, they're not the official words. Um, but here, I think, there is an interesting angle that many people who don't do a lot of stuff in this space forget that some aspects of data privacy law in the UK carry criminal sanction. And here, the warrant has been obtained not only on the basis of breaches of principle one and principle seven, but also on the basis of a possible breach of section 55. And they are criminal offences. They are uh, 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 serious criminal offences, uh, and and as a result, it looks like it's going to be a criminal investigation, and not just a regulatory investigation. And maybe one more thing to discuss on uh, Cambridge Analytica before, if I may, I'll put go onto the Facebook position. Um, uh, the judge has to have grounds for reasonable belief that uh, offences have been committed or breaches have been made of the Data Protection Act. So there is a threshold to get a warrant, which the ICO has clearly got over that hurdle. Now, there is some talk of the fact that data that has been seized from the premises may be relevant to other possible offences. There could be offences under election legislation. There could be offences uh, potentially under the Bribery Act. And I should stress that there's no evidence in the public domain to suggest that, that I've seen as yet. And the interesting aspect, of course, is that the ICO is part of a network called GPEN. And 
I would be extraordinarily surprised if the FTC's investigation wasn't already being informed by the ICO's investigation on the ground, given that the FTC are also members of GPEN and Elizabeth Denham, the ICO, has taken a, a prominent role in GPEN, this, uh, this global group of uh, uh, almost like the affiliated monitors of the data prosecutors world. Um, so, uh, so, so much for Cambridge Analytica. Obviously, they're having some management changes and are going through considerable pain now, and that's likely to remain with them for some time. So what about Facebook? Now, given that we're talking about Section 55 offences, if I was forced to be wildly speculative, I would say that that's because Facebook are running what you might call a shotgun defence. It wasn't me, Gov, it was them. Uh, and uh, as a result, uh, Facebook, I am guessing, are co cooperating with the ICO. Now, it's important to remember that the ICO have all sorts of powers, even pre-GDPR, so they can, for example, stop processing. They could order uh, uh, Facebook to, to stop unlawful processing. Facebook obviously know about that because there's another investigation into Facebook and their acquisition of WhatsApp, and Facebook only recently gave undertakings to the ICO that they would stop processing WhatsApp data as or merging it with Facebook data. So they've had a, a shot across their bows there. In terms of offences, if there are breaches by, uh, by Facebook of the legislation, the maximum penalty for each offence at the moment is £500,000 versus, just by way of illustration, since you talked about GDPR, Tom, about £26 billion were the offences committed in May rather than, you know, if there were offences uh, rather than earlier. But that's slightly insignificant, I think, versus the drop in share value. Facebook shares have dropped about 90 billion US uh, as a result of, uh, of this investigation. So it's fairly apparent, I think, that, uh, that there is a huge cost to compliance and a, and a cost to not getting it Correct. And I guess the arguments against Facebook are going to be similar. I don't know that anybody's uh, alleging any criminal behavior on behalf of Facebook, but it will be a similar investigation turning on, on, on principle one, the principle of fairness in the Data Protection Act, and principle seven, security. And by the way, both of those principles carry across into GDPR almost identically so for those people who are already doing their GDPR uh, plans ready for you know, the next 56 days or whatever day it is when this goes out, then, then they'll be well familiar with those principles. But in my view, this is an investigation that will run and run. Uh, Elizabeth Denham's already said, as I've said, that other offences might be committed. And if so, she'll pass those on to the appropriate authorities. If there has been and influencing of election, uh, remember that it doesn't have to be a cash payment to be a bribe under the UK Bribery Act. If offences there are made out, we could see US nationals, for example, those who've sponsored campaigns that Cambridge Analytica have run, 
uh, also face uh, consequences under the Bribery Act because of the extraterritorial reach and the fact that Cambridge Analytica's a UK entity and many of its executives are UK nationals. So I think this will be a wide-ranging investigation and I'd be very surprised if we weren't still talking about this in another three, three and a half years' time. Anyone with a question so, for Jonathan? Jonathan, I, I, I first, I have a comment for Jonathan that you have shattered my idea of a dawn raid, which I always thought <laughs> would happen at dawn. And it actually was a raid with data techs and stun grenades kicking in the doors. And, and now it's just one more of my, my childhood memories just shattered along with Santa yeah. Claus and the Easter Bunny. <laughs> um, but I, I think I guess, dawn you know, raids are much more likely under GDPR. So I think that's another change that will come in May. I think we'll see. I think we will see that sort of dawn raid. And, and as a brief moment of levity, the ICO investigation investigators turned up with new jackets, a bit like the US Secret Service have with Secret Service on the back. Uh, and they've got their new data enforcers jackets. So my suspicion is they're ready for GDPR and they intend to use them. See, I would expect you to, to sneak along with a helmet cam that we can then live broadcast on a future podcast <laughs> someday. I um, so. But no, I, I guess my, my real question is, um, this seems like a very messy sort of enforcement zone. And so from the American perspective standing over here, I'd long been wondering when GDPR comes into force, probably regulators will want to seek some sort of big company to make an example of them. And for a long time, I thought that would be Uber because Uber, was, they're going to do something to screw themselves up. Um, mm. And then I was thinking like, OK, so would Cambridge and Facebook, uh, would Cambridge Analytica and Facebook be this or not? But for those of us who are thinking, OK, where's the big enforcement action where they whack somebody for two percent of global revenue and we're all shocked and astonished and we take GDPR seriously? I mean, that sounds like th it, this is not going to necessarily be that you don't think. Uh, it could be. I, I think that, um, uh, yeah, I, I know people at, at Facebook. I know that they, uh, a, a lot of people there have been responsible in the past. I am not sure that Uber have invested the energy that Facebook have in meeting with EU data privacy regulators and allowing their concerns. I think the, one of the, structural advantages of GDPR potentially is because it allows regulators to share resources more easily across Europe, it is more possible for Europe to run multiple investigations at once. So I think we'll end up with the position that either the UK or Ireland will take the lead versus Facebook in, in, in this investigation and probably the Dutch authorities will take the lead uh, against Uber. I know uh, that there is a, a collection point at the moment of information about Uber's uh, lack of understanding of EU data privacy laws. And I think that investigation will continue at the same time. So I, I think they will ride both horses. I think Cambridge Analytica can obviously expect some severe consequences. And, and Section 55 proceedings 
would not be pretty and uh, and a conviction is likely to take somebody uh, out of the game uh, you know you can um, uh, you know they could theoretically be banned from a holding office in a UK company going forward for example so that could be career limiting were the section 55 proceedings to be brought so I, I think there's a whole load of other bits of investigation to come and I think that obviously in some respects regulators probably would have liked this to kick off in June July time so that they could exercise their new lightsabers but um, obviously you can't do that for historical breaches so if uh, everybody has cleaned their act up now then you can only uh, pursue them under the existing law but but let's not you know let's not be under any doubts the existing law still has has teeth and if what the whistleblower says is true it seems to me that this isn't an investigation that closes down quickly and I'd be interested in the evidence you know many people have comp complained about the fact that the that the ICO telegraphed the dawn raid, the, the judge actually bizarrely took an appearance by the ICO on television as notice to, uh, to Cambridge Analytica and said that, you know, a formal notice wasn't necessary to be served because she'd appeared on national TV and told them what was happening. Uh, he said it wasn't necessarily an appropriate way to give people notice of a pending investigation, but it was sort of good enough. So uh, it'll be interesting to see the evidence that's been acquired in the prior year, because, as I've said, this is a long running investigation. And it may well be that there's already a lot of evidence in the regulators domain. Um, so the Dawn raid might only have served to incriminate them a little bit more, because if the regulator is already in, in possession of emails, and when they've lifted devices from the premises, those emails have been deleted in a hurry. Uh, that might uh, cause additional concerns. So it might be that the purpose of the dawn raid is almost to match, to see what has gone in the intervening period, rather than that evidence being lost forever. Well, Jonathan, I think this is a story that we're going to have the opportunity to visit and revisit uh, for probably at least throughout this year and maybe even into next year. Mm, I think so. So, Matt Kelly, I've been really looking forward to visiting with you and uh, hearing your thoughts on sort of where you think we might be in terms of uh, Dodd-Frank reform, perhaps tied into uh, some Sarbanes-Oxley issues. And also, is the, um, is the administration's claim that it is reducing regulatory burden uh, uh, really uh, accurate, or is it really just Memorex? Uh, I will put the deregulatory question to last, because I don't need to get my high blood pressure up any higher. <laughs> um, let's start with Dodd-Frank reform. Because that there is actual news there. Uh, Congress has, in fact, done something, which is astonishing. Uh, the Senate, not long ago, passed by a fair margin, 
with bipartisan support, uh, passed Senate Bill 2155, which is formally known as the Economic Growth Regulatory Relief and Consumer Protection Act. Um, all sorts of nice keywords there to really say that what they did was reduce some of the regulatory oversight created by the Dodd-Frank Act. And this is really the first big swing at Dodd-Frank reform that we've seen pretty much since I think Dodd-Frank was passed in 2010. We've seen some nibbling around the edges over the years, but this was a big deal for specifically the banking sector. So um, for everybody who is, say, a head of regulatory affairs at a large bank or some other financial firm who's listening, this applies a lot to you. For everybody else who's listening who is an ethics and compliance officer at a non-financial firm, this is interesting, and you might be able to divine some clues about what might come next based on what's getting tackled right now. But a large part of this isn't actually something that a lot of ethics and compliance officers need to think about. Uh, so, for example, in SB 2155, there isn't any mention of Sarbanes-Oxley and Section 404 controls over um, your financial processes. There is nothing there, say, against um, shareholder votes over executive compensation. There is nothing um, prohibiting the pay ratio disclosure rule. Uh, a lot of the corporate governance concerns that had been put into the Dodd-Frank bill in 2010, they're still here. And maybe the SEC is taking shots at uh, what the regulatory burden is for those rules. But um, all of that big legislation that applies to all companies is largely still here. Um, what is in the, the bill that the Senate just passed is things such as uh, if you are a bank with $10 billion in assets or less, you are now exempt from the Volcker rule about co-mingling client and institutional money and investments. Um, if you are a mid-sized bank, which they define as a bank with 50 billion to 250 billion in assets, uh, that is more than what I have. Um, if you are a mid-sized bank, you do not need to go through annual stress testing anymore. Uh, you can go, I think it's every other year. And uh, stress tests are no joke. They are no bank's idea of a fun time. They are difficult. So there was a lot of that. It was a lot about loosening up the mortgage industry and uh, various other things that really apply to uh, the financial sector specifically. There was not anything yet about restructuring the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is interesting because once upon a time, Republicans wanted to have a five-member commission oversee it rather than the single person who was overseeing it. Of course, now Donald Trump has his own appointee as a single person, uh, and suddenly the Republicans think it's not that bad anymore. Uh, the only thing that is, I think, intriguing that could apply to a lot of companies is that this Senate bill requires the Treasury Department to do a broad assessment of cybersecurity risks and then come back with possible recommendations to regulators or others, other authorities, about new ways to enhance oversight if there's some sort of material cybersecurity risk. This sounds an awful lot to me like a report the Treasury Department put out in 2017, at the end of 2017, where they said that tech vendors providing services to the financial uh, community, they're a risk because we don't know who they are. 
We don't know their cybersecurity posture. And if they provide services, if one or two of them provide many services to a lot of banks and they get attacked, could that become a big financial risk? And that report even said that they would like Congress to give them authority to maybe regulate some of these tech service providers. Uh, so if you're a web hoster or a payroll service provider or something like that, you work with banks, conceivably, could the banking regulators wind up regulating you? Well, this is one way to get that outcome to come to pass. Now, for all of what I just said, the one pers- party I did not mention yet is the House of Representatives. So where we are at the moment is that the Senate has passed this legislation. The House last year passed its own legislation called the uh, Financial Choice 2.0 Act. And that was a considerably different chunk of legislation. So now comes the horse trading to try to get one uh, bill in conference. This has not yet happened. This is what's going on right now as the House and Senate try and figure out, okay, what could we actually get passed uh, across both chambers that the president might then sign into law. Um, it gets tricky because the House bill has a lot more stuff that compliance officers might take a, a step back at. Uh, the House bill does include a bigger exemption for SOX uh, oversight of internal controls. Uh, many more companies would be exempt from having the, an annual audit there. Uh, the SOX bill, I, the, the House bill, I think, also exempts many more companies from submitting their financial statements in XBRL. That's a data language that makes the analysis of financial data much easier. Regulators and investors use XBRL a lot. This would exempt a whole lot of companies from that, and therefore, you wouldn't be able to see it. Um, now, the House bill also takes a look at a lot of those banking industry regulations, a lot of the mortgage industry regulations, so they can cobble together some things. But if you put in too much of the House legislation, you might lose some Senate Democrats who are going to say, no way, we're not for this. If you don't include enough of the House legislation, some right-wing types in the House might say, this is too liberal, we're not going to vote for it. And the Democrats are going to look to stick it to the Republicans anyways. And could you have enough critical mass that you would then lose the House vote or lose the Senate vote? How are you going to get there? We don't necessarily know. Um, this is going to be tricky. It is worth noting, however, that what might get into the final bill that would particularly affect um, a lot of compliance officers, uh, you have to think about, say, Chuck Schumer, the senator in New York and the Senate majority leader. Well, he's from New York, so he represents Wall Street. So some of these pro-deregulatory ideas that are, in theory, going to goose up IPOs and make Wall Street bankers uh, happy – Maybe Chuck Schumer would say, that's fine, include some of those things from the House, and uh, that might still get into the final legislation. That is exactly what happened in 2012 when Chuck Schumer supported some uh, SOX rollbacks in the Jobs Act that passed that year, which a lot of compliance purists did not like that. I think they would not like this, but there are some political forces that might swing some key Democrats to say, let's do this anyways. Um, and then the key player on the House is Jeb Henserling. He is the chairman of the Financial Services Committee. He is right-wing. He wants a lot of this stuff in there. He wants to have his way. He feels like he's been excluded. On the other hand, he is not up for re-election. He's decided to retire in 2018. So the big question is, is, does he wanna, is this going to be the hill he wants to die on? 
uh, or not, and on what specific portion of the hill might he die on, because he really would like to rein in some uh, banking regulations, and would he get over himself and allow some of the governance regulations that he probably dislikes to remain in a uh, untouched in uh, whatever does get passed. So that's where we are with Dodd-Frank. Um, you also, since you had mentioned uh, deregulatory moves generally, you know, really, there's a lot of smoke and mirror around the Trump administration's talk. They're very clever in how they phrase this, that they have reduced the number of new regulations coming on board. Or, and that is not the same as saying we've cut regulation. Uh, there is actually, uh, you know, I think in some sectors, say specifically around environmental protection, they have worked mightily to try to reduce a lot of standing environmental regulations. Uh, the EPA administrator, Scott Pruitt, he has never seen an environmental regulation he likes. So he's looking to repeal everything he can find. Uh, they are talking about trying to slow roll future regulation and that famous two for one regulatory kill order that Donald Trump uh, talked about way back when in 2017, it actually said for every new regulation you plan to adopt, you have to propose two that you want to kill. I didn't say you had to kill them. You have to propose two that you have to kill. And that's all. Proposing to kill them is just as long and painstaking as adopting them. Um, and then also a whole lot of national security regulations are exempt from this. So everybody who's worried about AML compliance, that doesn't get covered in this. Everybody who's worried about SEC regulations, that's an independent agency. That's not covered by the deregulatory order. Uh, when you get down to a hard analysis of what Donald Trump actually said, that two-for-one kill order idea has more holes in it than Swiss cheese, um, and there's not a whole lot of there there. So I, you know, I roll my eyes at a lot of the deregulatory talk. They are decelerating the growth of regulation, and that's fine. But anybody who thinks, you know, we've gutted 22 regulations for every new one we've adopted, that's not true. Uh, we have proposed deregulating 22, or we've decided not to propose 21 more as we propose one. And that's not the same as killing off 22 orders when you adopt a new one. So that that's where I come down on that. So, Matt, let me uh, throw out the first question, which is you have um, written and talked about and thought about Jay Clayton and his role at the SEC a lot. In our last podcast, you gave us sort of a one-year wrap-up of the Clayton uh, chairmanship of the uh, SEC. Um, do you see any real difference in what the public comments have, of Clayton have been around access to capital to the uh, Dodd-Frank and or Sarbanes-Oxley regulatory reforms that are being at least bandied in Congress? Well, in the sense that they talk a lot about things that they want to do without actually doing much, I would say all of that is in step with each other. Um, you know, that I, I think that Jay Clayton would like to see more IPOs. I think that his proposed ideas don't actually move the needle on how many IPOs we might see. Let's not forget, we actually did see more IPOs in 2017 than in 2016. Um, and they do like to cite statistics about IPOs in a very misleading way. What is interesting is that a lot of what Dodd-Frank reform and what a lot of people in Congress want to try to do is to create this 
kind of a subcategory of public companies where you are raising money through crowdsourcing and uh, a lot more around loosening up the ability to get accredited investors to uh, invest in you early. But if you create more opportunity for companies to raise capital from more investors before going through a big registration process, then of course you're going to have fewer IPOs. You don't, if you're a company that um, needs to raise capital, but you don't need to go through the whole rigmarole of a filing an S1 and going from there, like, why would you go for an IPO? Never mind that if you're an entrepreneur, you can get the money from private equity, you can get it from venture capital anyways, there's plenty of that cash lying around. Um, so a whole lot of what they are saying about how to create more IPOs and a whole lot of what they're doing to loosen capital raising restrictions they're, they're not in step with each other in the real world. Um, so I think you know, I, I, I am hard pressed to see how a lot of what we will do will lead to a wild increase in IPOs like we would have seen in the 1990s, the vast majority of which back then weren't even worth the paper they were printed on, and they all went kaput in the dot, the dot-com collapse in 2001 anyway. So like, what's the point of that? Um but that's, I think, where we are around IPOs in particular. Mike Volkoff, I was interested in some recent announcements or perhaps even pronouncements by the Department of Justice that it may extend the reach of the declination program first laid out in the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy, which Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein announced in November 2017. Uh, I had a couple of questions I wanted to pose to you. Uh, the first being, uh, this was announced in the form of something called, quote, non-binding guidance, end quote. And that confused me because I thought uh, Deputy or Attorney General Jeff Sessions made clear there would no longer be uh, guidance issued by the DOJ. But then on a practical level, I wondered how would such an approach work for laws other than the FCPA, and how would uh, individual uh, AUSAs put it into practice? Well, I think it's a really interesting development that didn't get, uh, I mean, it got some press attention, but not as much as it deserved. Um, you know, apparently the acting head of the criminal division, uh, John Cronin, uh, gave a uh, speech at, the, uh, at a recent white-collar crime uh, National Institute meeting and announced that the criminal division is going to use the FCPA corporate enforcement policy as like what you just said, non-binding guidance in other areas of white collar enforcement beyond the FCPA. And they applied it in a particular case that came up, which was uh, they declined charges against Barclays Bank after the bank agreed to pay a penalty of $12.9 million as a result of a foreign exchange, it's like a front-running scheme, like a fraudulent scheme, and as, as the first example of this policy. Well, and it's sort of taken everybody by surprise. It, was, it came out of nowhere. So let's deal with the first issue, which I think you raised, Tom, which is, we were supposed to be dealing in an era of, you know, no guidance anymore. So we're not going to have, you know, Philip memos, McNulty memos, Rosenstein memos that just, you know, take on the life during that administration and then are, are, you know, rescinded. 
Uh, Rosenstein, you know, made a big deal out of directly amending the uh, U.S. Attorney's guidelines and manual uh, as part of the FCPA corporate enforcement policy change. So what as a procedural matter, it seems like they're just speaking out of both sides of their mouths as to what they're going to do for guidance in the future. Here we have we have guidance that's not even written down. We have guidance that's not even sort of uh, thought out as to how it's going to apply. And so now what we have to do is sort of read tea leaves from specific actions that they take. So there's that one big problem, which is just seems to me to be fundamentally inconsistent. And I don't know how it worked its way to get approved within the Justice Department. It just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, such an announcement like that, a speech like that goes through all there's interagency coordination, and then there's, before you even get to that, there's an approval process within the Justice Department that goes all the way up to the Attorney General's office. And I don't know why people didn't ask some basic questions, such as, okay, what crimes are these going to apply to? Are we talking about uh, environmental crimes? Are we talking about fraud crimes? Are we talking about only the crimes that are handled by the criminal division? Are we talking about, is this going to apply to all 94 U.S. attorney's offices? And just fraud, securities fraud, uh, you know, think of all the types of crimes that, that get prosecuted by the office in white collar areas. Um, you know, union fraud, theft, embezzlement. What are, what are we really talking about here? And so let's take the elements of the FCPA corporate enforcement policy. It is um, prompt self-disclosure, full cooperation, and remediation. And the big thing that I thought was pretty, I mean, I, I had a good sense of it in the FCPA context was in the absence of aggravating factors, and you meet those three elements, there's a presumption that you will get uh, a declination, which is a great policy. It's clear. I thought they, in the FCPA context, they defined those elements pretty well. But what are aggravating factors in an environmental crime case? What if, for example, you had a civil enforcement action against your company for, you know, hazardous materials? And then we have a criminal case in another environmental crime area against that same company. Does the civil case in the pre, you know, that preceded this constitute an aggravating factor such that you can't get a declination? I mean, what, what guidance does this give to outside counsel who is charged with, you know, advising the company on whether or not to cooperate and self-disclose? And it just seems to me like, I know this is a big deal to people, but it seems to me like this whole policy wasn't really well thought out. And it's almost like they're in love with the idea of, you know, incentivizing companies to come in and rat out themselves and they can, you know, put a criminal case together based upon the cooperation of the company. But this isn't well thought through. And I mean, let's back up for a second, Tom. We also, in the FCPA context, they didn't adopt this policy till we had a pilot project. And 
you know, it was a year under the pilot project or a little bit more. And then we saw exactly how the program was working. And I thought it was well thought out, every part of it, because we had some experience based upon it. I just don't see how this is going to work in other areas. Uh, you know, how let's say you have an export control violation. Uh, let's say you, you know, accidentally, or let's say you had some employees who sent stuff to Iran that shouldn't have gone to Iran. What do we know in terms of our ability to come in and tell the, the government about it in terms of uh, are we going to get a declination or have a presumption? And is it that the right area? Do you want to apply it in terms of sanctions violations, criminal sanctions violations? Do we want to uh, have this policy um, apply? The other thing is I thought there was a very specific discussion about and there was a mention, at least in the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, that given the difficulty of international prosecutions of corporate bribery, you know, uh, and the difficulty in collecting evidence and doing all of this, they adopted the corporate enforcement policy. I don't know that we have those same limitations in other types of criminal activity within the United States, like sanctions or export controls or things like that. It it, I, I mean, I hate to, to rant. This is almost turning into a rant, but it just doesn't seem to me to be uh, well thought out. And I think, you know, besides the inconsistency as to non-binding guidance, um, it, it's not well thought out. And it's sort of like they love the idea of just corporate leniency. And I think it's just a, it's a difficult thing to sort of just let it go and adopt it and hope that people are going to advise companies to bring, uh, you know, to come in and cooperate. It's not, it's not so clear it's going to lead to that. So, Mike, one area that we do not face in FCPA enforcement is 96 different uh, district attorneys or rather uh, U.S. attorneys uh, doing things differently uh, because it's all run out of main justice. But under this policy, at least at this point, I don't see um, uh, any limitation of what individual, even individual AUSAs might be able to do. Uh, and it just seems to me to have something that would be so important as potential corporate leniency, you would need a lot of consistency in an approach. Well, that's that's a great point, Tom, because, um, you know, FCPA and RICO, uh, indictments or or pleas have to be approved by main justice. Uh, there probably are some in the terrorism areas as well. But um, here they're announcing a, a non-binding guidance policy, but what they're failing to understand is that they're, you know, all the U.S. attorney's offices out there that prosecute white-collar crime every day. And the question is, um, how is that policy going to be applied and how are they going to make sure that there's consistency? One U.S. attorney's definition of aggravating circumstances may be very different from the neighboring district uh, in terms of aggravating circumstances. I could see the Los Angeles district, uh, the central district being very different than the southern district where San Diego is. Um, so, you know, their perception of aggravating circumstances is such that they can, um, you know, apply their own sort of local policy, but then we're going to get a patchwork of different uh, approaches. 
And let's say we find out that the U.S. attorney in Los Angeles is, you know, handing out declinations much easier than the San Diego one. Okay. And let's say we have jurisdiction in both uh, districts. I may sit there and say, okay, well, let me, I'll go report now to LA because I think the U.S. attorney there will give us a better shake. Do we really want to create a system like that where there's forum shopping? And that was one of the th reasons why the FCPA, they wanted to ensure consistency. All of their, if a U.S. attorney's office touches an FCPA case, whatever they do, any, you know, a plea, a settlement, whatever, has to be approved by Maine Justice to ensure that there's consistency. And I think we're, this could lead to even more weird, disparate results across the, com the country. And in a federal system like this, that I don't think that's fair to practitioners, nor is it fair to the uh, companies, nor is it fair to the public interest in the, in the end in terms of uh, an enforcement policy. So, Mike, the other kind of perhaps even on a more the theoretical uh uh, or philosophical question this raised for me was the whole um, doctrine of respondeat superior. And is this some mechanism uh, for this uh, Justice Department to try to soften the uh, perceived or potential harshness where one corporate employee's actions can bring an enforcement action, either civil or criminal, against an entire corporation under the doctrine of respondeat superior. Would that be too far a stretch at this point? Uh, I think, uh, I mean, I think you're, you're raising an important question, which is once you hand out leniency um, to such a great extent across the criminal justice system, is there problem, is the problem that, that they're trying to address that and, and remember, Rod Rosenstein, I think, uh, at least a month or maybe two months ago, gave a speech at which he said they were going to reexamine, you know, corporate enforcement and the impact it has on shareholders and also coordinating, you know, with international uh, prosecutors as well to make sure that there's not sort of double punishment for one single course of conduct. Well, all of that raised an issue, at least in my mind, that, you know, we're getting to the point where a lot of the prosecutors at the, you know, the head, the DOJ level, are questioning these large settlements that we've been getting for against uh, companies. And I think what may be underneath that is, you know, lobbying efforts by, uh, you know, some of the corporate interests and business interests about how these penalties are not necessarily the best enforcement and deterrent mechanism and that we should look at other alternatives. Well, then that handing out leniency to such a degree raises a question as to what the real issue may be is that they're, they're not so happy about the respondeat superior doctrine and nobody's been sort of willing to take that on in the sense that you can have three bad actors run a bribery scheme and everybody in the company is uh, held accountable and the shareholders are held accountable. So what do you do with that? Um, and if they really want to address that issue, they should address that issue. I mean, I know, the, uh, I know that the Chamber of Commerce uh, years ago did try to address that issue, but they didn't get very far. 
instead, they adopted this sort of criminal overcriminalization and trying to change sort of criminal intent standards. But it seems to me like they really need to address the corporate liability issue if that's what they're trying to do. But it seems to me like a sort of backhanded way to get at that same result. So um, I guess, Mike, we're just going to have to wait for some further clarification, because at this point, um, it, even with the Barclays uh, declination in the Forex case, uh, we, we even this week had uh, more fines and penalties paid by Barclay in other areas. Um, right. And with uh, the Sessions pronouncement, I'm just... Uh, I'm not really confused. I just think we need perhaps a little bit more information on the direction this policy is going to take. Well, you raise an interesting issue because they just settled their, uh, you know, for the mortgage uh, backed securities problem going way back. They Barclay settled on that uh, at two billion, which was supposed to be they really like took a hard line supposedly with DOJ, but you know, nonetheless. You know, within the space of two to three months, they, number one, got a declination on the Forex problem and then got a sweetheart deal, at least the best deal that some of the major banks have gotten and were praised for their hard-nosed negotiation of just paying $2 billion as opposed to some of the other larger amounts paid by financial institutions. So, you know, I'm concerned that there may be changes afoot that we're not being, you know, it's not being, they're not being as transparent as they need to be with regard to how they're approaching this issue and simply announcing it at a, as a, in a speech at an event, you know, to, you know, as well as I do that you need to see it in writing, but they have this anti-guidance approach. So how are we going to get this guidance if they can't put out a memo in writing to, to, you know, guide either the U.S. attorneys or else give the public and practitioners some guidance as to what's going to happen. So, Mike Volkoff, do you have a rant for us today? Well, I do have a rant, and I guess I have to give my son credit for it. And he said to me, I was speaking to him and uh, checking in on him, and he's uh, in getting his uh, MBA and he said to me, you know, the real issue of what's going on in politics right now is not, uh, you know, the standard Stormy Daniels, this, whatever. He said, you really have to look at the level of corruption that is taking over uh, agencies and the federal government and um, the sort of uh, ignorance or the fact that we aren't focusing as much on the corruption. Yeah, we have the 31,000 dollar place settings from the from HUD. We now have a fifty dollar uh, you know condo fee that's paid to the wife of a lobbyist that, by the head of the EPA. Uh, you know, it just each week we're hearing a new story of corruption and flying in military planes for two million dollars a year so far. Our you know the, the Treasury Secretary has never flown on a public uh, airline. Um, and I think at some point it's going to hit where we're, and hopefully where people are going to say enough is enough. We take it for granted. 
no matter what your politics may be in the Obama administration and in the prior Bush administration, the level of corruption, we never had daily reports of corruption in the same way that it's going on right now. So I'm just hoping the American public wakes up at some point. You know, we're all so willing to go and prosecute companies for corruption overseas. But, uh, you know, it's kind of uh, it's kind of like what what's going on in our own backyard and how are we uh, setting an example for anybody at this point? So that's my rant for today. OK, Matt Kelly, do you have a rant for us today? I do. And um, I know for the last couple of podcasts, I've actually was more positive about things. That's because I gave up rants for Lent and Easter is now over by the time this podcast hits the air. So I'm back on rants. Um, My rant is about the Department of Veterans Affairs and the dismissal of the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, David Shulkin. Uh, He was fired on March 27th by President Trump, who, of course, fired him by tweet. Um, But what really gets me is the nature of why David Shulkin was fired and how that can complicate ethics and compliance officers' effort to be taken seriously. Um, So Shulkin was fired for an ethical infraction. And what he did was an ethical infraction. There's no question about that. So he had traveled to Europe on government business, on the taxpayer dime, And then because he had more time there, I think he was in between two overseas stops, he decided to have his wife come along for a short vacation. I'm not opposed to that in principle. However, she flew at the taxpayer dime, which is an ethical violation. And I am opposed to that. She should have flown on her own dime. And uh, then uh, Secretary Shulkin accepted tickets to the Wimbledon tennis tournament uh, while he was there, and he did not um, reimburse uh, the people who gave him the tickets. He just he accepted them, and that, I think, was over whatever gift limit he was supposed to be able to take. So those are ethical infractions, and they were investigated. And it is possible that you could then conclude perhaps he should be fired. The problem I have is that political appointees in the Trump administration, who were appointed by Trump, Um, not by Secretary Shulkin, who were in the VA, they used this as a pretext to fire Secretary Shulkin because he opposed their plans to privatize the VA. Now, this is not some conspiracy theory I'm spouting here. We know that the political people at the VA were using this as a pretext because, of course, they put it in an email to each other, which has since been produced. And it actually said, more or less, okay, we have to use this ethical lapse here to get him out so we can proceed with our great plan to privatize the VA. Um, My issue is that we have ethical misconduct that has become a pretext to pursue political ends. And that devalues the uh, objective of punishing ethical misconduct because it's wrong, period. Um, Now, like I said, I don't necessarily know whether Shulkin should have been fired, perhaps, perhaps not. But the way that we often complain about the lack of accountability for executive misconduct, this really can be construed as over-accountability. He created the opportunity for them to use the ethical misconduct to pursue their own political agenda, which they did. And that sort of thing just rings hollow the whole idea of holding people accountable at all. He wasn't really held accountable for his misconduct. He got ousted on a technicality 
of uh, for political means and political purposes. And that's just that's not the way this should be run. So um, I have a big beef with how Secretary Shulkin was shown the door, not necessarily that he was shown, but how he was shown that doesn't pass the smell test. Jonathan Armstrong, do you have a rant for us today? Yeah, I, I wonder if I could have the opposite of a rant and then a rant. So my opposite of a rant is I've just returned for the SCCE uh, conference in Frankfurt. Once again, really great job from uh, Roy, Adam, Elisa, uh, Jerry uh, and the team. So great conference, really well organized. They, they should all be very proud of themselves. But my rant is on the way back from Frankfurt today, and I've only just stepped back through the door. I'm amazed at the people who still don't know the rules for baggage going through airports. So there was a couple ahead of me. Let's just call them Mr. and Mrs. Schmidt, who were questioning everything. You know, since when has it become a rule that you have to put your toiletries in a bag why do I have to take my belt off? Why do you want my laptop in a separate tray? I think people should be made to sit an exam before they go into an airport, particularly uh, when it's coming up to a holiday weekend. And if they can't pass the exam and they can't persuasively tell the security people why it all has to go in little bags, then they shouldn't be allowed within five miles of an airport. And why is that relevant to compliance? Because it strikes me that... We can talk all we like about effective communications and airports have obviously been doing that for years with, you know, announcements over the tannoy, with signage, with putting clear plastic bags in front of people. There was even people at the head of the queue saying you'll need to put your toiletries in a little plastic bag. Here's a little plastic bag for you. And if people still can't get the message, despite that, you know, whatever it is now, 10, 12 years of messaging about this is how we get through airports. Is there any hope for us in trying to get people to understand our compliance programs? Because if they can't understand anything as simple as how to get through an airport uh, checkpoint, then, then how on earth can we expect them to remember some of the very complicated ethics codes that, that, that modern businesses have? So I guess what that taught me is repeated messages, got to keep it simple. Yeah, but, but effectively, the only way that people like this learn is face-to-face -face communications. And that's a lesson for all of us in our businesses. Jay Rosen, do you have a rant for us? I wouldn't call it a rant, but I would say I'd like to uh, congratulate the, I believe it's the district attorneys in uh, Maryland and the District of Columbia for getting the right to uh, proceed with a suit against the president and his abuse of the emolument. How do you say that? Emoluments. Cost? Emoluments. Yeah. yeah, so it was, it was very cool that we learned about this. Uh, some of us knew, but I learned about it about a year and a half ago. So I'm really uh Happy that there is an opportunity to proceed against the president, and I think uh, we should see some uh, <clears throat> other jurisdictions, especially in New York City and other places where the Trump organization operates. So uh, kudos to the, uh, the district uh, 
judges who approve that, and I'm anxious to see uh, this uh, case uh, move further within the courts. So I have a, also a split shout-out rant. Uh, my rant, uh, let me start with my shout-out. It's actually a melancholy, happy trails. Rusty Staub died today, and Rusty Staub was one of the three heroes of my early youth, uh, athletic heroes. He played for the Colt 45s and Houston Astros. He was an all-star with the Houston Astros. Unfortunately, he was traded to, from the Houston Astros to the New York Mets, Mets where he um, won a World Series. He also played with um, uh, the Expos and Tigers. So a big shout out to Rusty Staub. Uh, my rant is, though, with the uh, New York Times. And it's because uh, one of, I think, the top uh, noir authors uh, in the world died last weekend, uh, last Friday, Philip Curry. He's a Scotsman. He wrote the Ber Bernie Gunther series. And uh, the New York Times didn't see fit to put his obit in the paper until today. So for those of you who think that the um, world uh, circles, uh, both the world and the rest of the universe circles the United States, I think that's certainly evidence, uh, at least from the New York Times obituary perspective, very irritated with the Times. Well, gentlemen, as always, it's been a great session. Uh, I look forward to uh, uh, continuing the conversation. Thank you all. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about the only roundtable podcast in compliance with four of the top compliance practitioners. If you have any questions, you can email any of the panelists. Uh, their email lists, uh, emails are listed in the show notes. I hope you will join us for our next episode of Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.